0: Welcome to the History and Philosophy of Physics podcast. I'm Tegan Phillips, and this is episode 6, He's Always Changing His Mind. This week, I'll be talking about Heraclitus, the philosopher of flux. Heraclitus lived in Ephesus, a city in Ionia in modern-day Turkey. During Heraclitus' time, Ionia was still largely inhabited by Greeks, but it was under Persian rule. Ephesus is located about 40 kilometers north of the site of Miletus and about 30 kilometers northeast of the island of Samos. It was an important city in Ionia and is primarily known today as the setting of William Shakespeare's play The Comedy of Errors and is the location of the renowned Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis at Ephesus was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Its ruins can still be visited today, But it was destroyed over 1500 years ago and many of the fragments of the temple are now housed in the british museum in london which sponsored the expedition to rediscover and excavate the temple site in the late 19th century heraclitus was born long before all this though we don't know exactly when we do know that he was active around the year 500 bce a couple of decades after Anaximenes and towards the end of the lifetime of pythagoras very little is known about heraclitus's life many of the ancient biographers recorded stories that are thought to be either inferred from heraclitus's own writings or made up heraclitus implies that he was self-taught and there is no record of him traveling outside of ephesus or of being taught by any of the notable thinkers of his day however he was certainly aware of the work of earlier poets and philosophers because he comments on a number of them by name in his writings Heraclitus wrote one book, called On Nature, which he wrote on a papyrus scroll that he placed in the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus for safekeeping. There was no such thing as a library yet, and people would often store their valuables in the sacred and protected space of a temple. This works great until the temple is destroyed and looted, like the Temple of Artemis was. Heraclitus's book was destroyed, but over a hundred fragments have been passed down, primarily through direct quotes in other ancient works. It's believed that the fragments we have today make up a good portion of the original book. The fragments are largely unconnected and don't seem to reconstruct any kind of coherent argument, so on nature is thought to have been like a collection of sayings or proverbs. The scientist and philosopher Theophrastus said that Heraclitus's work seemed half-finished, which he attributed to the melancholy or depression that Heraclitus is thought to have suffered from. Diogenes Laertius said that Heraclitus' book had three sections, on cosmology, on politics, and on theology. However, the fragments show a lot of interconnections between these different realms of thought, and scholars can't find a good way to divide them into these categories. Heraclitus is usually seen to have developed his thoughts and worked independently of other philosophers or schools of thought, like the Ionian school or Pythagoreanism. Heraclitus implies in his book that he was self-taught, and some of his theories and his method of explanation are also noted to be quite unique among ancient Greek thinkers. As I said, Heraclitus had read the work of earlier philosophers, and in his book he criticizes many of them, including Pythagoras and Xenophanes, and he criticizes Homer, Hesiod, and the historian Hecateus, among others. Heraclitus treated the epic poets like fools and called Pythagoras a fraud, and this was before Pythagoras was made semi divine by the Neopythagoreans. The thinkers Heraclitus is believed to have regarded most highly are the early Milesian philosophers. He doesn't explicitly criticize them, though he does make a remark in one fragment that seems to be criticizing Anaximander's view of justice. But one fragment is believed to express Heraclitus' admiration for Thales, and it's generally agreed that Heraclitus saw the Milesians as the most progressive of the early Greek thinkers. Like the Milesians, Heraclitus developed a physical and cosmological theory, though he seems to have focused much more on the human realm than the cosmic one. Some people find this a curious direction for Heraclitus to have taken, because he is often described as a misanthrope who generally disliked humankind. But it also makes a kind of sense, because his focus on humans and human values allowed him to make recommendations on ethics and the way people should live, while simultaneously criticizing various ways in which people are failing to make proper choices in areas like politics and morality. I'm sure that misanthropes in general have plenty to say about the human realm and don't all mind taking the time and focus to write about it. Another point generally accepted about Heraclitus's character is that he was an elitist who believed his theories could only be understood by a special few, most people being too stupid to understand. The first fragment of his book says, Of this word's being, forever do men prove to be uncomprehending, both before they hear and once they have heard it. For although all things happen according to this word, they are like the inexperienced experiencing words and deeds such as I explain when I distinguish each thing according to its nature and show how it is. Other men are unaware of what they do when they are awake, just as they are forgetful of what they do when they are asleep. Heraclitus was such a charmer, though he does have a point when he says some people sleepwalk through life. However, Heraclitus doesn't write in the most straightforward way, and some of his sentences are hard to interpret. Even the very first sentence I read, it begins, Of this word's being forever do men prove to be uncomprehending. Many scholars have pointed out that the word forever is ambiguous. Does it refer to the word's being and mean that the word is forever existing and that people don't understand that? Or does it refer to the people and mean that people throughout time don't understand the being of the word? It's not clear which interpretation is the right one. So, I think part of Heraclitus' problem was that he just wasn't great at explaining himself clearly. He was perhaps the beginning of a tradition among philosophers of writing books that are difficult to understand or take a while to puzzle through, like the works of Kant or Hegel. Heraclitus doesn't write as much about abstract principles as these later philosophers do. He focused more on applied or practical principles and emphasized how experience is a necessary part of gaining knowledge. This word Heraclitus references in this opening passage is the account or message that he is conveying through his book. Heraclitus states that this message is not his own invention, but is, rather, a truth about the natural world that is common and available to everyone. Part of this message is that all things are one, which he does seem to mean in an abstract sense. This isn't the same as the theories of the earlier Milesians. They were seeking to explain what matter and the physical world ultimately consisted of, whereas Heraclitus is tackling a different problem and seeking to explain change. How is it that materials change form and substance? How can balance be maintained in a world that is changing? It is in answer to these questions that we get Heraclitus's best known doctrine, flux. Today, physics has maintained the concept of flux, which is defined as the amount of something like an electric or magnetic field passing through a surface. For Heraclitus, Flux referred to a more general sense of flow or change, and could be applied to pretty much everything. Plato, in his dialogue Cratylus, writes: Heraclitus, I believe, says that all things pass and nothing stays, and comparing existing things to the flow of a river, he says you could not step twice into the same river. Plato doesn't quote Heraclitus directly. So scholars have tried to verify Plato's interpretation by finding a fragment of Heraclitus' writing that mentions this example of a river. There were a few candidate fragments, and one of them is believed to be genuine, based largely on its grammatical structure and how it was passed down through more reliable writers. This fragment states, On those stepping into rivers, staying the same, other and other waters flow. This definitely seems like it was written by Heraclitus, because it's a bit confusing the first time you read through it, and a bit ambiguous as to whether staying the same refers to those stepping into rivers, or the rivers themselves. Ah, Heraclitus. Regardless, this sentence does make a sort of sense. Rivers have water that is constantly flowing. If they didn't, they'd just be lakes or long puddles so the matter that makes up a river is constantly changing as fresh waters pass by the bank, but a river itself somehow stays the same. We can identify a specific river as being the Nile River or the Euphrates, and what we refer to as those rivers today we consider to be the same rivers around which the Egyptian and Babylonian empires grew so many thousands of years ago. It's now popular to interpret this fragment of Heraclitus' book to mean not that all things are changing such that you can't encounter them twice, as Plato describes, but that some things stay the same only through flux or by changing. This would mean that the principles of constancy and change are connected. Now, Plato was a pretty smart guy, so people don't like to think he misinterpreted Heraclitus especially because this is kind of an important aspect of his theory. So, some scholars say that Plato might have gotten his interpretation through Cratylus, the guy the dialogue is named for. Cratylus was a late follower of Heraclitus and could have misinterpreted the passage and passed this on to Plato through a conversation or a formal lecture. There are also still some scholars who argue that the Platonic interpretation is the right one, So the debate continues. Flux is considered to be a part of a wider doctrine of Heraclitus's, the doctrine of the unity of opposites. It's the idea that opposites can be interconnected and the same over time. It's also interpreted to mean that things can have opposite qualities at the same time. Heraclitus describes it by saying things like: Sea is the purest and most polluted water, for fish, drinkable, For men, undrinkable and harmful. The sea is physically the same, but has opposite qualities at the same time in different contexts. Heraclitus isn't unifying opposites through identity per se, so he's not making a logical contradiction, as some people thought he was. Saying things like a penguin, or cat if you prefer, is both alive and dead at the same time, which is logically impossible. Rather, it can be both alive and dead, because these things are unified through the process of change over time. Heraclitus writes, as the same thing in us is living and dead, waking and sleeping, young and old. For these things having changed around are those, and those in turn having changed around are these thus contrary states are interconnected and are the same by virtue of the process of change heraclitus does put a special emphasis on the element of fire though he doesn't appear to follow the milesians in advocating for it as the single primary element of all matter aristotle seems to think that he does but most people disagree with him heraclitus advocates for radical forms of change like fire into water and water into earth. However, he does identify the world with fire in particular in his cosmology. He writes, This world order, the same of all, no god nor man did create, but it ever was and is and will be, ever-living fire, kindling in measures and being quenched in measures. As a fun fact, This fragment contains the first known use of the word cosmos to refer to the world or universe. Here, it's translated as world order. Some ancient sources, including Aristotle, believe that Heraclitus held the view that the world is periodically destroyed by fire and reborn again, like a cosmological phoenix. It's a cool idea, but it doesn't really vibe with the fragment I just quoted. Heraclitus clearly writes that the world order, or cosmos, ever was, and is, and will be, everlasting fire. This is not a statement that the world is periodically burned up and reborn. It seems, rather, that Heraclitus is saying parts of the world are continuously being transformed as fire, but the world itself, or the overall concept of the world order, remains the same. It is in constant flux, like the river." Fire in itself can be seen as a process of change or transformation. It is fed things like wood and produces smoke, heat, and ashes. Fire is both giving and taking. It's constantly changing. An apt choice for the philosopher of flux. Heraclitus describes fire as changing into other elements, and vice versa, through particular pathways. In one fragment he writes, The turnings of fire first sea and of sea half is earth half fire burst fire burst is believed to reference a kind of fiery and windy storm or a meteorological phenomenon heraclitus continues on to say sea is liquefied and measured into the same proportion as it had before it became earth the elements are interconnected and follow a transformation sequence of fire to sea or water then to earth and storm they also follow the reverse sequence of earth to sea to fire these transformations generate all the elements as well as the physical things we observe and experience on another physicsy note heraclitus utilizes a kind of principle of conservation of matter the water that is liquefied and returns to being water after being earth returns in the same proportion it was in before the change This means that no quantity is lost even though the identity and probably the mass of the matter was changed through the transformation. This leads to a kind of elemental equilibrium whereby for each portion of fire becoming water an equivalent portion of fire is made from other water or an amount of water evaporating is replaced by the same amount falling as precipitation. The matter or materials may be constantly changing but the overall balance, or world order, stays the same. Altogether, this implies that without change, there would be no world. Some people interpret this as something akin to Newton's third law of motion, which states that for every action in nature, there is an equal and opposite reaction. To maintain the world's equilibrium, every change must have an equal and opposite change. Though, obviously, in Heraclitus's case, This is not as direct and mathematical as Newton's law. It's a more abstract principle, balancing things out on a cosmological scale. Heraclitus extends the notion of opposing balance, or the conflict of opposites, to include things like war, which he praises, saying, War is the father of all and king of all, who manifested some as gods and some as men, who made some slaves and some free men. And, we must recognize that war is common and strife is justice, and all things happen according to strife and necessity. This last fragment is the one thought to be criticizing Anaximander, who believed in a cosmic justice that punished powers who overstepped. Heraclitus viewed justice more along the lines of a conflict of opposites balanced out by general strife. For Heraclitus, conflict is a precondition of life. Things must die for other things to be born and to live. In addition to his theoretical work, Heraclitus is believed to have studied observable astronomical phenomena, particularly the changing phases of the moon. He was interested in determining the days of the lunar month, a topic very much in the realm of a practicing scientist or astronomer. Heraclitus also developed theories about the astronomical phenomena he observed. He thought that the sun and moon were bowls filled with fire, and that the lunar bowl rotates, leading to the appearance of the different phases of the moon. Similarly, eclipses occur when the solid bottom of the bowl rotates to face the Earth, instead of the end which is open and reveals the fire. Supposedly, these celestial bodies are fed by evaporations from Earth and sea, that condense to form fire once they reach the bowls. Now, Heraclitus writes on more than just nature or physical theory, and I'd like to take a couple minutes to discuss some of his other topics of interest. I've already mentioned his emphasis on experience as being a necessary part of gaining knowledge, and one of his thoughts about war and justice. I also said that Heraclitus wrote quite a bit about the human realm as opposed to the celestial one, Heraclitus seems to have viewed his theory of nature as being very closely connected with the human condition. He believed that the soul has a fiery nature. It is born of water and dies when it becomes water. So, drunkenness is a problem because it makes the soul wet and damages it. Heraclitus also seems to have believed that a virtuous and healthy life keeps the soul dry. A person's character, according to Heraclitus, determines the ultimate fate of their soul, a view agreed upon by many other philosophers and theologians. Heraclitus writes that the character of man is his guardian spirit. Politically, Heraclitus believed that one good man is worth 10,000 ordinary men. Also, that the laws of human society reflect the laws of nature and receive their authority from the one divine law, maintaining justice through opposition. Heraclitus describes a divine unity underlying the world order and manifested in all phenomena. He writes, God is day, night, winter, summer, war, peace, satiety, hunger, and it alters just as fire when it is mixed with spices is named according to the aroma of each of them people may name things and perceive things differently but they have or are manifestations of the unity of divine power heraclitus applies this to morality too he says to god all things are fair good and just but men suppose some things are unjust some just obviously heraclitus's theological or religious views were quite different from the traditional ancient Greek pantheon of human-like gods and goddesses, which shared many of the human conceptions of right and wrong. It's unclear what might have led Heraclitus towards his different view, and it's unknown what he practiced religiously, because there's so little knowledge of his personal life. Heraclitus is not believed to have had students. Perhaps he didn't find anyone smart enough to meet his expectations. However, his book was soon well-known and influential, and he had followers like Cratylus, who studied and lectured on his work. But, since they probably weren't actually taught by Heraclitus himself, they could quite easily have misinterpreted some of his ambiguous statements, as mentioned earlier. Regardless, Heraclitus made a name for himself in early Greek philosophy. He was the first to focus so heavily on human values and the human condition. He also had a unique form of expression and was notable for using sense experience and concrete examples to express more general truths. Heraclitus is thought to have had a particular influence on Parmenides, who developed a contrasting philosophy that I'll discuss in the next episode. Elements of Heraclitus' work also seem to have influenced other philosophers, including Empedocles, Democritus, and Plato. Heraclitus's physical theory was adopted as the basis for Stoic physics, although they followed Aristotle in believing that Heraclitus proposed a phoenix-like world, which was periodically destroyed by fire and reborn from the ashes. While Heraclitus wrote on topics like ethics and politics, he is best known for his doctrine of flux, an idea which has survived, in name at least, if not with the same nature, as the modern physics concept of flow through a surface. Well, that concludes our look at Heraclitus. As I mentioned, I'll be talking about Parmenides in the next episode. Until then, you can check out the website for the podcast at historyandphilosophyofphysicspodcast.ca, follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter, just search at histphilphyspod, or send me an email at histphilphyspod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Take care and stay safe.